Traveling west on the Santa Fe Trail was hard enough. Doing so in the midst of an unexpected cold spell with a wife and infant daughter in tow could be downright miserable. Thus was the difficulty facing a trader by the name of James White in October of 1849. The wagon train had made the trip to New Mexico all the way from Independence, Missouri without incident. Feeling confident, James, considering himself a veteran of the trail, decided to strike on ahead with his family and just a few other people, hoping to make the final push to Santa Fe a little bit quicker. A hasty decision that would cost the man his life. The warriors came upon James White and his bunch not far from a place called Point of Rocks, about 20 miles or so east of present-day Maxwell, New Mexico. Hickorias they were, Apache, and they were demanding handouts. James shooed him away initially, feeling confident that he and his small party could fend the beggars off. And it was a small party. Other than James, his wife Anne, and infant daughter Virginia, you had another lady, a black servant whose name is unfortunately lost to history, a German by the name of Lawberger, a couple of New Mexican hands, and another guy who went by Callaway. Five men, two women, and a baby. And I guess you can figure what happens next. The warriors returned with friends, and this time they didn't ask so nicely. When the soldiers finally came to investigate, they found Mr. White's body and the bodies of the other men eaten at by wolves. The two women, however, were nowhere to be found. Neither was little Virginia. A friend of the dearly departed put up a $1,000 reward for Anne's safe return. That's nearly 36000 in today's money. And it wasn't long before some friendly Pueblos reported seeing a female in a nearby Hickoria camp. Soldiers from Taos, the first dragoons under a Major William Greer, immediately mobilized and headed east, picking up expert trackers as they went. You see, Major Greer knew good and well that he and his soldiers couldn't track no Apache. Not effectively, at least. Now, you needed someone who knew the Hickoria, who had previous dealings with the tribe. And who better than the most famous Indian fighter and tracker west of the Mississippi? Hell, let's face it, the most famous Indian fighter in the entire world at this time. Kit Carson. The only question is, would old Kit be up to the job? Join me today as we delve into the aftermath of the White Massacre, make fun of some shoddy Pulp Fiction, and take a look at how things really were on the frontier. Get your grave digging shovel handy and tell your god to ready for blood, because it's about to get real dark up in here. My name's Josh, and this is the Wild West Extravaganza. Ah, Kit Carson. You've heard me mention the man more than once on this podcast. Maybe you've even listened to the admittedly not very good series I did on Kit once upon a time. Carson came west on the Santa Fe Trail himself some 23 years before the White family as a 16-year-old runaway. Got into the fur trade and made one hell of a name for himself. Although illiterate, Carson was still razor sharp, fluent in Spanish and at least half a dozen native tongues. Kit had what was called mountain sense, and he had it in spades. He knew how to track, how to hunt, how to trade, how to make war and make peace. And most importantly, he knew when to make war and when to make peace. He also knew a thing or two about staying alive in a vast wilderness that chewed up and spit out genteel souls like James White. And yes, Carson knew the Hickoria. His ranch was smack dab in the middle of Apache territory. And warriors often stopped by, asking for presents just like they did with James White. Presents that Carson would give them. Remember what I just said about knowing when and how to make peace. 
Kid understood that a key ingredient to living harmoniously with his indigenous neighbors meant not just being generous with gifts, but also recognizing when to show strength. According to one visitor to Carson's Rayado Creek Ranch, quote, being thoroughly acquainted with the haunts of the Indians, he, meaning Carson, had punished them so severely that they had found it in their best policy to make peace with him. He now enjoyed their friendship and often gave them meat, and they no longer molested his stock, although they continued to steal from others. End quote. So yeah, no real surprise that Major Greer of the First Dragoons came calling on Carson to help find these missing women and the baby. But it wasn't just Kit's stellar resume and comprehension of the Hickoria that Major Greer found appealing. Fact of the matter is, the Army officer already had him some very capable scouts, an all-star cast even. Tom Tobin was one of them. You may remember him from the episode I did on the Espinosa brothers, and how Tom single-handedly ended their murder streak, bringing back the elder Espinosa's head in a burlap sack. I'll link to that episode in the show notes. And if Tom wasn't enough, the Dragoons also had Uncle Dick Wooten scouting for him. Rich and Lacey Wooten, better known as Uncle Dick, had, just like Kit and just like Tobin, been tramping out west for years. From New Mexico to Bent's Ford to present-day Washington State, from Arizona to California. There wasn't much land that old Uncle Dick hadn't seen. And when it came to dealing with the natives, he weren't no stranger either. Cheyenne, Ute, Lakota, Arapaho, Comanche. He had traded with or fought against all of them. And he was still wearing his scalp. Nah, Dick Wooten wouldn't be no stranger to the Apache or their ways. You also had Anton LaRue as part of this rescue party. Guide, scout, veteran of the Mexican-American War. The man originally came west with Ashley in 22 with guys like Bridger, Hugh Glass, Jed Smith. He trapped at the elbows of the best of the best, and just like Kit, Anton was fluent in God knows how many languages. Only thing Carson had on any of these men I just mentioned was a little something called fame. Not to say that Tom Tobin or Anton LaRue weren't famous. They were well-known out west. Not so much back east, certainly not as well known as Kit Carson, and there damn sure wasn't nobody writing books about him. Part of Carson's fame, obviously, was due to his real-life exploits. I mean, let's face it, there's a good reason we're still talking about him to this day. He just flat-out led a fascinating life. But in 1849, a decent chunk of Kit's notoriety came from having friends in high places, namely the great explorer John C. Fremont and Fremont's daddy-in-law, U.S. Senator Thomas H. Benton. These two influential men spread the word of Carson's heroic adventures far and wide, and it weren't too long before little children began playing Kit Carson in schoolyards back east, as their fathers whispered his name in awe. Even in the hallowed halls of the White House, Kit's name was spoken, and always in reverence. Oh, did I mention he had been a guest of honor at our nation's capital on more than one occasion? And then there were the books. John Fremont, after each one of his expeditions, which were guided by Carson, would return home and write up a long report. Reports that were full of valuable information, not only for the U.S. government, but for settlers who were hungry for land out west, and information on that land and its conditions. These accounts, who also happened to sing the praises of Carson, were printed by the thousands and distributed among the population. And with each printing, Kit Carson's fame grew. Now the tales that Fremont had to spread about Kit were mostly true, if not a bit fanciful. But the public was starving for heroes, and it wasn't too long before full-blown fiction books featuring Carson were churned out. Penny dreadfuls and dime novels whose only passing familiarity with reality was the use of Kit's name. These made-up tales often depicted the five-and-a-half-foot-tall Kit Carson as being almost Herculean in stature. Buckskins rippling with muscle, a chest built like a fortress, an oak of a man who killed scores of Indians before breakfast just to get his damn appetite up. 
various other descriptions that would cause women to blush and even his greatest of fans to feel let down when they actually met the famous scout in person. Like then-Lieutenant William Tecumseh Sherman when he first encountered Kit in the fall of 1847, saying, quote, I was very anxious to see a man who achieved such feats of daring among the wild animals of the Rocky Mountains and still wilder Indians of the Plains. I cannot express my surprise at beholding a stoop-shouldered man with reddish hair, freckled face, soft blue eyes, and nothing to indicate extraordinary courage or daring, end quote. Another oft-told story centers around a freshly arrived immigrant from the settlements who approached Carson and asked, I say, stranger, are you Kit Carson? When Kit assured the man that he was indeed, the pilgrim looked him up and down and said, Look here, stranger, you ain't the kind of Kit Carson I'm a-looking for. You get the idea, right? I mean, these books made Kit out to be superhuman, and there's no way anybody could possibly meet such expectations, especially a man of such small stature as Carson. It's funny to think about, but much of that humor is lost when you consider the sad fate of Anne White. You see, she had, in her possession as a captive, one such book. Kit Carson, The Prince of the Gold Seekers, written by Charles Averill. This particular piece of fiction had Carson rescuing a damsel in distress from the hostiles, just as he was attempted to do as he led Major Greer's scouts in search of Anne. And of course, in Averill's book, Carson stoically saves the day and rescues the young lady. Unfortunately, Anne White wouldn't be so lucky. Kit found her, sure. I mean, everybody knew he would. He just got to her a little too late. Her ravaged body, covered in bruises and scratches, was still warm. Her face emaciated and barren, according to Carson, the quote-unquote sorrows of agony. She had likely been gang-raped repeatedly. And when the Apache caught sight of the scouts, they loosed an arrow into Anne's chest. Unlike in the Penny Dreadfuls, the real-life damsel was dead and the distress had to just keep on living. In camp was found a book, Carson later said, the first of its kind that I had seen, in which I was made a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. And I have often thought that as Miss White would read the same, and knowing that I lived nearby, she would pray for my appearance, and that she would be saved. I did come, but had not the power to convince those that were in command over me to pursue my plans for her rescue. End quote. Mrs. White was buried there on the spot, a fire built over a grave to highest location in case the Apache returned. According to the others who were there on the ground when the book was discovered, Carson has some less than polite words to say about it. When the novel's contents were pointed out to the trap-returned scout, he responded simply, Burn the damn thing, and ordered it tossed into Ann White's funeral pyre. Look, there's a hundred Kit Carson stories I could share. Hell, I probably will end up sharing plenty of them on this podcast. But this one, for whatever reason, always kind of stuck with me. I recently heard an interview by author Hampton Sides on the Meat Eater podcast. I'll link to that in this episode's show notes as well. Mr. Sides, if you're not familiar, wrote the book Blood and Thunder. Really good read on the life of Kit Carson, as well as the plight of the Navajo, Hickoria, and other tribes there in that area. Well, during the interview, Hampton Sides let it slip that his book had been optioned by HBO and the same bunch of people that brought us Game of Thrones. Fingers crossed. Assuming that they somewhat stick to the script, HBO is really the only network that could possibly do this story justice, right? I mean, we're talking a seriously rated R series if this actually happens. And I just barely skimmed the surface on the whole Anne White rescue. The full version is just as dark and grim as anything Cormac McCarthy could envision. For instance, you may recall that Mrs. White wasn't abducted alone. The unnamed black lady was with her, so was that little baby. 
Well, they didn't make it either. Baby Virginia was the first to go, murdered and thrown into a river not long after abduction. The servant woman was soon to follow after committing the cardinal sin of just not being able to keep up. And then there's the tragic tale of Lobo Blanco's daughter that I didn't even touch on. Lobo, or White Wolf, was a Hickoria chief. His daughter had been taken hostage by the military some months before and was now going to be used as a ransom of sorts, a pawn to get Mrs. White back. At least that was the plan. Camp not far from the site where James White was killed, the young Apache woman began wailing and crying. Ordered into a wagon by a teamster, she responded by stabbing the man and several mules before they finally just shot her down. This was the real Wild West, and there were seldom happy endings. I mean, take the Hickoria tribe as a whole. Part of the reason they attacked James White's small party was out of desperation. You know, not that I'm excusing the murder and kidnapping and other horrible things they did, but a desperate people will commit desperate acts. Not a large tribe to begin with, they were constantly under attack from bigger groups like the Navajo. And when they dared venture east to hunt for buffalo, they lived in fear of the Comanche. Tossing an ever-growing trickle of migrants crossing their hunting grounds via the Santa Fe Trail and dwindling game, things were getting downright hopeless. Much of the stealing and raiding that they were taking part in was out of survival, necessity. The Stone Age had just been violently flung against the face of so-called civilization, and the results weren't pretty. They were eventually forced onto reservation where they began dying off in droves. Starvation, poverty, malnutrition, and diseases such as tuberculosis nearly pushed the Hickoria to extinction, even as recently as the year 1920. Like I said, this was the real Wild West. An episode of Bonanza, it ain't. Taken as a whole, the story of the White Massacre and its aftermath perfectly encapsulates the tale of westward expansion. Dirty little underbelly of manifest destiny. But in the large scheme of things, it's barely even a blip on the atrocity radar when it comes to human history. And on a personal level, it shows that our heroes of the West were just men. Men capable of amazing feats as well as absolute failures. Not that I'm calling Carson a failure and you really can't blame Ann White's death on him. But he was a flawed man. Many of us think of him as a hero, but the Hickory and the Navajo may have other things to say. Matter of fact, there's a statue of Carson in Trinidad, Colorado that was defaced not too long ago. The word murderer spray painted across it. Another in Denver was preemptively taken down. I think it's safe to say that not everybody is a fan of old Kit Carson. He was responsible for displacing not only the Hickoria, but the Mescalero and the Navajo. His campaign against the Navajo was especially brutal, using scorched earth tactics. But then you gotta think about Ann White, that dead baby and that murdered black girl. The countless other children stolen from their families on the frontier. Or just the slave trade in general there in New Mexico around that same time. And no, I don't mean plantation slavery, like what was happening over in the South. Mexicans and other tribes would raid the Navajo and Hickoria and take captives, sell them on the black market. The Apache would return the favor, using their newly acquired human spoils as slave labor or just to replenish their numbers. Families were ripped apart, lives were destroyed. At the end of the Civil War, there were hundreds of Native American slaves held as peons there in New Mexico, owned by federal officers who had just helped fight a war supposedly to end slavery. I could go on and on. There was nobody that was blameless. Our heroes were often villains, and our villains, well, sometimes they weren't as bad as they were made out to be. There was no black or white, just varying shades of gray. And I don't really know if I'm even trying to make a point here. Other than to say maybe it's not wise to attempt to place our modern-day morals on figures of the Old West, or any historical figures. 
Go take a look in the mirror. And that face you see staring back at you, that's the face of both slave and slaver, the oppressed and the oppressor. It's in all of our blood. Much of human history was that. And with survival being a primary goal, oftentimes our ancestors didn't care too much about anyone outside of their immediate family. Make no mistake about it, the good old days weren't always all that good. Now, some people are going to hear this and write it off as revisionist history, but I personally think stories like this are important. I feel like the telling of both sides is important and telling it accurately. History doesn't have to have an agenda. The 1619 Project, Forget the Alamo, The Lost Cause, Critical Race Theory, Book Banning, Stop Politicizing History. Maybe if we get off our damn high horses and realize we all come from butchers and savages, maybe if we look at history as it was and try to learn from it, maybe then we can stop making the same mistakes over and over. Maybe we can put this tribal shit behind us and figure out how to live together in the here and now. But that'd be too easy, huh? Better just to keep us all mad at each other, arguing on the internet while the fat cats and the ruling elite on both sides keep raking in the billions. But what the fuck do I know? By the way, I hope I'm not coming off as some sort of know-it-all or ultimate purveyor of historical truth. I'm guilty of everything I just condemned. I've had plenty of moral judgments and whataboutisms on this very podcast in the past. I probably will in the future. I don't know. It's just something to keep in mind, I guess. I can definitely do much better myself. All right, now I guess I can get off my high horse. Earlier, I mentioned that the White Massacre took place at Point of Rocks in New Mexico. Well, as far as I can tell, there are five separate locations along the Santa Fe Trail known as Point of Rocks, three of which are in Kansas. One is near Old Benz Fort in Colorado. And then finally, our Point of Rocks is in New Mexico, just north of Highway 412 between Maxwell and Clayton. Kit Carson, Prince of the Gold Seekers, is still available, by the way, if you want to pick you up a copy. As of this recording, you can find the paperback on Amazon for $19.75. But don't feel like you got to go that far back just to read really bad Old West fiction. I was just in a used bookstore the other day, and judging by the ceiling-to-floor stacks of William W. Johnston westerns, the genre is alive and well. Strange, considering that Johnston's been dead for nearly two decades. I mean, his family or whoever is now writing these books must be making a killing. If, and this is a big if, if HBO does make a series based on the life of Kit Carson, who do you think should play him? It's hard to say, man. If you look at pictures of Kit, he was never large, but there towards the end, he starts getting real gaunt, his face sort of drawn in. I guess a hard life coupled with an aortic aneurysm will do that to you. Whoever plays Kit doesn't necessarily have to look like him. But then again, you don't want anybody too pretty, right? Gotta be someone on the rougher side. What do you think? WildWestExtra at gmail.com Fuck it, let's just go with Denzel. If you like what you hear, as always, please share this episode with somebody. Spreading the word is the best possible way you can help the Wild West extravaganza grow. And if you're not too depressed after hearing this episode, feel free to donate to the cause and buy me a coffee. You can do that at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. Or just go over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that coffee icon. Shout out to Ralph, by the way, who recently bought me a whopping 10 coffees. Thank you, sir. While you're there on my website, check out some of my previous episodes, and always feel free to hit that contact button. Let me know what you think, and please keep the suggestions coming for future topics. That's all I've got for this week. Not sure what the next episode's going to be on, but I do have a lot in the works. We've got Rube Burrow coming soon, farmer turned outlaw. 
Got an Annie Oakley story in the works, as well as a Comanche story that I'm really excited about. Alfred Packer, Britt Johnson, Joaquin Murrieta. A lot of people have requested Murrieta. These are all episodes I'm working on, so please stay tuned. Till next time, try not to commit any atrocities that'll spur on generational warfare and leave an entire people broken and decimated and on the verge of ruin. Adios. Let's just go with Denzel.